let's stand together tonight. How many of you want to go through the Sermon on the Mount? Amen? Amen. How many of you have read ahead? Five of you. All right. Give them a great big hand. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Sermon on the Mount. And uh, by the way, at the end of this, I'm going to take a few questions. So if I say something that um, ignites a question in you, um, file it and ask it at the end of the service because we're going to take about two or three questions. Great way to end the service. Love, I've already answered a bunch of questions tonight on the radio, and um, we'll just continue the trend tonight. So I know you have some questions. I know you wonder about some things. In the Bible, don't you? Say, I wonder. Somebody say, I never wonder. Okay, good. None of those. All right. We're going to read uh, what we're going to cover tonight. It's, it's really uh, pretty much the same theme Jesus is dealing with, and that is the motives for why we do what we do. So they're going to put that up there. Uh, here it comes. Na, 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 na. There it is. So let's go ahead and read it out loud with me. Be careful not to practice. Now, this is starting chapter 6, by the way. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verse 5, And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Can you imagine standing on a street corner and praying real loud so people can see you and hear you? Sad. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, everybody say, that's you. He didn't say if. He said, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. They will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Do you believe that? All right. This then is how you should pray. We all know this part. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, that being the devil. Verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now that's a tough saying right there. Amen? That's Jesus really turning the screw on forgiveness. When you fast, notice when, 
Not if. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and drag around looking sad to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Amen. That's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessing tonight on the Word of God. Open our eyes and our ears. Give us understanding in Jesus' name. And help us to do things with the right motives. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, perk up and listen, it's going to be good. Amen. Amen, amen. Hello to all of you way back there on the back row. Amen. Now, I want you to just, uh, Jesus is carrying on the same theme with all of these. And, and I want you to notice that in keeping with so much of the Sermon on the Mount, he's concerned with our heart. Have you noticed that? He's concerned with our heart. He's already shown us that if you don't deal with hate, for instance, in your heart, it can lead to murder either literally or assassinating somebody's character, uh, whatever it is that your hatred is leading you to do. But hatred never just sits there. It eventually acts out. Okay? So what did Jesus say? I'm concerned about your heart before I'm concerned about the action. Your heart condition will lead to the action. Same thing with lust. If you lust in your heart, it can lead to the actual act of adultery. So again, the condition of your heart precedes action. Jesus took Moses' one-dimensional commandments, don't, just don't do something, don't kill, don't uh, steal, don't commit adultery. Just a one-dimensional, he dealt with the action. Jesus deals with the heart behind the action every time. So he's addressing uh, with these three things that uh, we as Christians engage in giving, praying, and fasting. He's dealing with the motive of our heart. Uh, he's more concerned with our, our motive than he is what we're doing. Because you can do a right thing for the wrong reason. Amen? You can do a right thing with a wrong reason. Okay? People do it all the time. So this is what he's getting at. Now, as he deals with these three things that, that Christians do, giving, praying, and fasting. Um, the Pharisees are the foremost um, targets in his mind. Jesus didn't, did you ever notice his roughest words were for the Pharisees? You know, brood of vipers, gravestones, whitewashed hypocrites, all the things he called them. He was not politically correct in dealing with the Pharisees. Uh, he wasn't even nice. And that's who he's talking about here. Jesus grew up watching the Pharisees. And, and they were just a, a motley crew of hypocrites. Everything they did was for show. So Jesus is dealing with them. He's targeting them. And they're sitting there listening to him do this Sermon on the Mount. 
So he, he points out that the motive with the Pharisees, first and foremost, every time was the praise of men. It was the praise of men. They wanted the attention, the praise, and the admiration of men. So this is what Jesus is, is focusing on. This is what he's dealing with. The Pharisees were all about show and pomp and the visible display of religious deeds so that people would look at them and go, wow, you are really something. Aren't you something? The way you pray, oh, my goodness, I've never heard anybody pray like you. Well, you're just fasting all the time. You are so spiritual. And the things you give, oh, I, I watch you give, and the Pharisees made sure you watched what they gave. And, and Jesus said, and this has always kind of haunted me in a good way, Jesus said they got their reward right then. What was their reward? Aren't you something? Because they're not going to get any reward from God above. They, they get what they wanted right then and there, but it stops. Now, and I don't know about you, but I kind of think God can reward you better than men. Right? I don't. I don't want the admiration. I don't uh, look. I mean, I, anybody likes somebody saying you're doing a good job, or you do that well, or you know you're looking good, or whatever. We're, we all like to hear that kind of thing. But Jesus is going to teach us: don't live for it. Don't perform for men. Don't do what you do for the praise of men. Have you ever noticed the praise of men is fickle? They, you're, you're a hero the day, one day, zero the next. You're the greatest thing since peanut butter one day, and you're the devil the next. Have you ever noticed the praise of men rises and falls with their mood? The same people that cried out to, to uh, crucify Jesus and mocked him hanging on the cross had been there just days earlier saying Hosanna to him as he entered Jerusalem on the donkey. So they just, they could not keep it together. They, they were not consistent. Now, Jesus says, truly I tell you, when you perform for men, that is particularly your religious duties, praying, fasting, giving, if you do it for the praise of men, Jesus said, clear as a bell, they have received their reward in full the brief and fleeting praise of men. Now in verses 1 to 4, he talks about giving. The Pharisees made sure that everybody was looking uh, when they gave. Jesus compared the way they acted to blowing a trumpet. Nah, 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 I'm about to give. I, I can put it this way. It's the offering bucket is coming down the aisle and somebody pulls out a hundred and just pops it. And as the bucket comes by, they just drop it in. Where everybody around them saw they gave a hundred dollar bill. Ooh. Jesus said, if you do it for that reason, pop, pop, pop. You just got your reward. You just wasted $100 because I would have blessed you for giving $100, but you just lost my blessing because you were doing it so that others would look at you and say, aren't they something? Aren't they something? 
Isn't it amazing where the heart of human beings can go? We are so vain. We are so self-centered. It's so easy for us to make it all about ourselves. Let's, let's face it, we love the praise of men. That's why it's so hard to take a stand for Christ. Because we don't like persecution. We don't like people looking down on us. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But their entire motive for giving had nothing to do with the glory of God. They weren't giving to further the work of the Lord. They weren't giving to give glory to God. They were giving for the praise of men. They wanted all the credit. They wanted all the attention. And now Jesus says they do the very, very same thing with prayer. They stand on a street corner. They go out where all the traffic is, all the human traffic going on. Okay? And Jesus said instead of praying in secret, they go and they trumpet their prayer. They pray long prayers. And they, they pray long prayers of repetition. That's how the translator called it, babbling. Endless repetition. They go into long, extended, repetitive prayers in a loud voice so that others will hear them and say, aren't they something? Look at that person praying. Are they not an incredible prayer? I mean, can they pray or what? Now, I want to stipulate, I don't want you thinking that you can't pray in public after we go through something like this. Be paranoid about praying in public. We got to remember, Jesus is giving us illustrations to teach us that when we do these things, they need to be done from a pure heart that is toward him. Okay? So you can pray with a pure heart in front of a million people. You can, you can give with a pure heart with a thousand people looking if you can't get away from it. Um, he's not saying don't ever do anything publicly. He's not condemning public displays. He's, he's making the point, be sure that when you do it, you're doing it as unto the Lord and not for men. Not for men. I think it's embarrassingly pathetic that the Pharisees would go on the street corners and, and just begin to pray in those long robes, looking so religious, so impressive, with all of this learned eloquence. And they would pray these long, involved prayers. One time, i got to be careful. I don't want to get in trouble, but I was in Jerusalem. And I went into the Dome of the Rock. I went in. And that's, of course, Muslim. I went in. I just wanted to see what it looked like. I wanted to see, because I, I was used to my church, my kind of church. So I went into the Dome of the Rock. And it was loaded with uh, sincere Muslims, all bowed the same way, all chanting the exact same chants. It was... It was prayer by rote, prayer by learning, prayer by repetition. And I say, and I'm not trying to anger anybody, but I'm going to tell you, the oppression was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And I remember thinking, here's the difference. They're not praying to Muhammad, their founder. It's just these ritualistic chants. That don't, I mean, to them it means something, but if you look at the sum total of it, what does it do? It doesn't do anything. It was just chance. Jesus said, don't do that. 
don't, don't pray where it's just a memorized prayer. Don't just learn, you know, even the Lord's Prayer. You can do it by memory or you can do it from your heart. He's telling us, don't do it so that men see you and do it as unto the Lord, to the Lord. Sincerely knowing that God is watching. Because every with every one of these three, he says, God sees it. God who is in secret sees it. He hears it. He knows it. So when I give my tithe, I don't do it so anybody can know about it. Nobody knows what I do. Nobody. Well, Leticia probably does because she's my executive assistant and she sees it all. But I don't know. I don't think anybody else does. I don't do it for anybody to know. Every time I do it, I say, Lord, touch somebody through this. And I give this in obedience to you and what you put on my heart to do. I do it as unto him. God forbid I would give away a tithe for the praise of men and lose the blessing God would give me. I don't want the praise of men. I want the blessing of God. I want the blessing of God. How about you? When God blesses, it says the Lord blesses and he never adds sorrow with his blessing. No sorrow comes with the blessing of God. So they pray these prayers and they get the praise of men, but what they don't get is an answered prayer. They don't get an answered prayer. If I'm going to go through all the trouble of going somewhere, shutting the door, praying to God, spending time and effort and energy, I want it answered. Amen? I don't want to waste my time. So then Jesus mentions, finally, the wrong motives for fasting. Look what he says. I love the way he plays on the Pharisees. No wonder they hated him because he's telling the truth about them. He holds up the Pharisees as prime, prime examples of how not to fast. Once again, how many of you want to give up nine meals for nothing? If I'm going to go without eating a day, two days, three days, brother, I'm coming out of there with the blessing of God. I'm not going to throw nine meals away so that somebody will say, aren't they spiritual? Do you see Pastor Jeff walking around looking so sad? It's because he's fasting. No, no, no. Watch this. Jesus said, let me tell you what they do. They look somber. They disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. <laughs> I get a kick out of that. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Now, two ways he describes them, the somber or the sad face. All right? They would put on a sad face that was totally affected, totally fake. They walk into a public gathering, and they immediately put on a sad face. Why are they putting on a sad face? So that it would appear that they're grieving over something that also grieves God. It was a total show. Then Jesus said, not only do they walk into a public gathering with a sad face, so people will see the sad face and say, why are you so sad? But they also disfigure their face. Now I thought, what's the difference between sad and disfigure? They disfigure their face, it means they don't wash their face. And they don't trim their beards. They look disheveled on purpose. Because they want people to go, brother, are you okay? And you get to say... Oh, I'm just fasting. 
Oh, you're fasting. You're so spiritual. You fast all the time. What a man of God. What a woman of God. But here's the sad thing. However long they've been fasting, they just lost all those meals because they're going to get nothing from God. Are you okay? Oh, I'm just fasting. I've been praying. I'm just so burdened about the things of God. But Jesus said it was all fake. They were phony baloney macaroni. Right? They were fake. Now, with all three of these religious practices, let me just boil it down to what Jesus is teaching us. One, do what you do as unto the Lord and don't do it unto men. Do not perform for men. I perform for an audience of one. I do my best to perform for an audience of one. I perform for an audience of one. Because men are not going to give me a reward when I stand at the judgment. Men are not going to give me a reward. Men are not going to open the door to heaven for me. Men are not going to do anything in my standing with God. Nothing. But he is. So I do what I do for an audience of one. Because that one is always watching and weighing every one of my thoughts and actions and attitudes and words. And so I'm going to answer to him. I'm not answering to any of you, and you're not answering to me. I'm going to answer to him. And only he, only he is going to say to me, well done, Jeff. You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to make you a ruler over much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Only he's going to say it. So it may be that Paul the Apostle was thinking of this uh, teaching of Jesus when he wrote these, these words. Listen to this. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. There it is. Giving thanks to God our Father through him. Whatever you do, if it's words, if it's deeds, do it as unto the Lord. Don't do it for men. So whether you eat or drink, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, here's the second one. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, not for the glory of men. And then here's another one, Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you're going to receive the inheritance as your reward. Where is our inheritance going to come from? The Lord. Not men, not men and women, not the opinion of people, but his opinion. Amen? You are serving the Lord Christ. How many of you can say with me, I'm serving the Lord Christ. I'm serving Jesus. Amen? If you feel that way, give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. So whenever, like right now, I'm teaching, and God's called me to do this, long ago. I'm not, I mean, I, I don't, don't take this bad, but I'm not doing it for you ultimately. I love teaching you. My, my primary motivation is not you. Don't take it wrong. I love you. You love me? Say, I love you. Okay. Okay. I, I'm not doing it. I'm not saying that to offend, but I'm saying what motivates Jeff Wickwire is not people. It's him. 
I'm going to answer to him. He called me. You didn't. He called me. No one else did. He called me. I didn't. He called me. And he called you. He summoned you. He saved you. He gifted you. Not me. Not the person next to you. So we serve the Lord Christ. We, we play for an audience of one. He's watching. Amen? What we do as believers, we must always do with our eyes looking up to God, not around at men. Because people come, people go. I'm going to say that again. People come and people go. Like I said a little while ago, they'll pat you on the back one day, stab you in the back the next. I don't mean to sound cynical, but it's true. A lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time. So you find that if my motivation is only people, I'm going to lose that motivation. If you get burned enough, if you get betrayed enough, if you get wronged enough, and we all will, you eventually say, well, I just don't have the fire in me anymore. Your fire has got to come from something else. It comes from him. He started the fire. He sustains the fire. And he's the one that's going to call us up. Amen? And, and so you learn if I do it for people, I'm going to lose that motivation because a lot of the times they're not thankful. Last weekend, you know, we went out. We went out um, witnessing to the community. We went to right at about 350 to 400 businesses. We went out. Uh, two by two. I took young Jonathan with me, uh, a little twenty-two-year-old uh, that I've been ministering to and mentoring a little bit, and we went. We just walked into these businesses, and here, here's what we said to them: We said, "We so appreciate what you do for the community. What you do, you stimulate the economy. You, you provide a service." We know that a lot of mean people come in here, a lot of thankless people come in here, but we wanted to come in and just say, we appreciate you. And all, immediately you could feel, because at first they wonder, is this a cult? Because we're coming in with a bag, you know, we're coming in looking like, we're not here to buy anything. We're here to talk to you. Because the first thing I did was ask for the manager. Well, you do that, they're immediately thinking, well, it's a cult. And we didn't have a white shirt on with a black tie, none of that, but we still, you know, so I said, we're not, right off the bat, I said, we're not a cult. We're here to thank you, and we want to give you some candy. What is it about candy that opens doors? We gave them candy. And before you know it, the, the two ladies in one store immediately began to share with us their story of being offended and hurt in church. And because that happened to them, they had not been back in years years so I began to minister to them I understand I've been hurt in church almost everybody in here has been hurt in church at some time or another and so the thing is what are you going to do with it how are you going to handle it you going to let it drive you out you going to let it ruin your spiritual growth you going to let it disconnect you from the life source God gave you no. So talking to them, here they were. No other customers came in. It was a God moment. Invited them to our church. 
If, if anybody from that day shows up, it's probably going to be them. Would you consider coming back? Well, maybe. Well, I'm inviting you. And thank you again. And we left. Okay? They needed to hear that because we don't hear that enough. But here's the thing. If you're doing everything you do for the praise of men, you're not going to get the thanks you always want. You're not going to get the appreciation you always need. No. So you've got to do it for him. Listen to what the Bible says. Paul writes, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Can I read that again? Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know why? Because people don't like your gospel. And when you begin to talk about Jesus and the need to repent, the need to get right, the need to live a life that is pleasing to him, they're not on your side unless they repent. So you've got to make up your mind. Am I going to please people and say nothing? Or am I going to please him and tell others about Jesus? The Bible warns the fear of human opinion is a trap. Trusting in God protects you from that. Amen? Isn't it a great day when you can just wake up and say, I really don't care what people think anymore. Now, I care what people think about my walk. I want them to know I walk with God. But as far as their opinion of my walk with Jesus and my Christianity, I don't care what they think. I don't care what they think. Hey, has anybody realized they don't care what we think? Are you there? The second thing we learn from Jesus' teaching is God openly rewards the genuine seeker. He openly rewards. Jesus says, with giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do it between you and God. The promise is your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will openly reward you. When praying, go to a secret place and pray. And the same promise is given. Your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will openly reward you. With fasting, put oil on your head. Wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting. And Jesus promises when God sees your sincere heart, he will openly. Now notice, notice this. What the Pharisee was wanting at the beginning, you get in the end. Because the Pharisee wanted men to look and say, aren't they something? But if you please God, his blessing on your life is so clear and evident, others see it. But it gives glory to God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the overall message of Jesus is that our motive for doing what we do matters as much as what we do itself. The motive for it, right? God told Samuel, and I close with this verse, Men judge by outward appearance, but I look at a man's thoughts and intentions and motives. That's what God looks at, not the outer appearance. We Americans, we're all about outer appearance. But have you ever known and noticed that you can look great on the outside 
and be dying on the inside. Um, and you can look good on the outside, but have all kinds of nefarious motives on the inside. God looks on our heart, and he rewards our heart, our right motives for doing what we do. I'm going to stop there because Jesus, that particular theme stops there. So next time we're going to look at two things, and I love it too, treasures and the problem of worry. I know none of you worry, but you can get the CD and take it to somebody who worries. No. Okay. Let me take a few, a uh, couple of questions if we have any. Uh, if you have any questions about uh, what you heard tonight or anything else uh, from the Bible, raise your hand and we'll, uh, I'll do my best to answer. With the uh, geopolitical arena that we're in with Israel, do you feel that um, this is the battle of Gog and Magog? No, I'll tell you why. In Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39, and Gog and Magog, Ezekiel has a vision that he says, this is for the last days. I, he, he identifies what he's about to predict as happening in the last days. And he names several nations that are going to be involved in a confederacy of nations that come together as one and attack Israel. They will be, it will be a pan-Islamic confederacy. Every nation that he names, I can give you a few, he names ancient Persia. That's the landmass that is today Iran and Iraq. He names, uh, I believe Saudi Arabia is in there. He, he names several nations that today are rabidly anti-Semitic, rabidly Islamic, and then you look at, okay, well then who's Gog and Magog? Because that's the first ones he identifies. He says they are to the uttermost north. Well, if you track the uh, etymological roots of Gog and Magog, the etymology of the word, where did the word Gog come from? You trace it to the Muscovites. You trace it to the Russians. And there's only one land to the uttermost north of Israel, and that's Russia, the Soviet Union. That's it, Russia. There's nothing else to the uttermost north. Gog and Magog are the leaders of this attack. It's sudden. It's vicious. It's overwhelmingly unfair in the natural. Ezekiel says that they come down to take a treasure. They come down to steal something from Israel. What that is, um, we don't know for sure. Uh, there's many motives, could be oil, could be um, the rich mineral deposits at the bottom of the Dead Sea. It could be a lot of things. But their motive is to steal something and to absolutely exterminate the land of Israel. It says as, as they come down on Israel like a cloud, God sends fire out of heaven. I'm just telling you what it says. Ezekiel 38, fire falls from heaven. It destroys five, six of the army. 
of this huge Islamic army. I personally believe when God does this, it's going to bring an end to the Islamic religion because five, six of them are wiped out. Five, six of them are just wiped out. And Israel is spared by the mercy of God. Now, the thing with this current battle, Russia is not the leader. Hamas is. And I will tell you behind Hamas, no question is Iran. I'm not going political on you. Please don't take it this way. But our president sent $6 billion to them a couple of months ago, even really sooner than that, about a month ago. $6 billion. And there are people who have a brain who looked at this and said, there is no question that's going to be used, at least in part, for terrorist activities and to fund terrorism somewhere in the world. And now a month or so later, you have this. Did they get some of their money for weapons from that $6 billion? I don't have anything in print in front of me, but I wasn't born yesterday either. I don't know for sure, but I would think probably. So we funded Israel's primary enemy, funded them with big bucks. Go figure. <sighs> if I didn't know Jesus, I don't know how I would handle all of this. But I know Jesus. Amen. And I, it's a, my comfort. I know him because he first loved me. But I have comfort in him and comfort in the scriptures. But so it can't be Ezekiel 38 because Russia is not leading it. Now, if you wake up tomorrow morning and in the paper it says Russia has invaded Israel, lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Because then you know Ezekiel 38 has just been launched. Okay? Yes, sir. Mark 16, 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, I don't personally believe someone has to be baptized in order yeah. to be saved, but it seems like Jesus is pretty clearly saying um, someone has to be baptized in order to be saved. Is, do you think that's what he's saying right no. there? No, um, because here you have to take the teaching of the whole Scripture uh, when you come across a verse that perplexes you, always remember the Bible is its best interpreter of itself. If you want the Bible interpreted, let the Bible interpret itself. So when you come across a, a scripture verse that throws you, look at what the rest of the Bible has to say about it. Now we know that from Moses forward, when all the sacrifices were initiated, well, really all the way back to Adam, God took the life of an animal to cover them, okay? The Bible says early on, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So early on in the ancient garden, all the way forward, especially when you come to Moses and the entire sacrificial system that was set up, uh, sacrificing, you know, a lamb, 
uh, to cover the sins of the people, the scapegoat. You would speak the sins of the people over the head of that scapegoat and send him out. Always, there, there was this constant picture that there must be one life given for another. There must be the sacrifice of one for the salvation of another. And it was repeated and repeated and repeated for centuries. Now, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is types and shadows, signposts, pointing to the New Covenant and the arrival of Messiah. So what was God saying to us with the sacrifice of all those animals? Well, what did John the Baptist say when he looked at Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, everybody standing there knew what he was referring to. Calling a man a lamb? Thanks, but no thanks. Don't call me a lamb. But what do you mean? He was referring to the whole sacrificial system, saying there's your ultimate, final lamb that all the others were pointing to. This is him. So what covers our sin? Not water, the blood. I believe the word baptism is in there because what does it represent? When you and I are baptized, and I hope uh, if you haven't been baptized yet, you do so next time. We should have one major baptism next time. But um, when you're baptized, what are you, what are you saying? You're saying, I've been forgiven. I've been given a brand new lease on life. My sins are covered. My old life is over. If any man, any woman be in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away. All has become new. So when you go down into that water, what are you signifying? The burial, burial of your old life. Buried with him by baptism into his death. Raised to walk in the newness of life. So... Water baptism is a physical illustration of a spiritual reality of what has happened with me. The Jeff that was there as a teenager that was in drugs and crazy and sinning 100 miles an hour, he's gone. He's dead, buried with Jesus by baptism into his death, buried with Jesus and, and raised to walk in newness of life. There's a new Jeff. The old Jeff is way, way back there on the cross. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, yet Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, so I believe he included water baptism as signifying what uh, turning to him means. Because I'll give you an example. There's all kinds of people go preach on death row. They go minister to death row uh, inmates all the time. If, if I'm on death row and you share the gospel with me and I come under conviction of the Holy Spirit and I say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin, come into my heart, if I can't get him to water, is he going to go to hell? No, because the water doesn't save. The blood saves. The water only signifies what the blood has done. Now, I do believe water baptism 
is your first, should be your first act of obedience as a Christian. Boy, when I got touched by God, I got saved squared to the 10th power. I was cranked for Jesus, right? And I didn't want to wait for baptism to happen in a building somewhere. So I really did. I had some people take me in a, remember those good time bands? The magic bus, good time kind of vans, hippie vans. They took me all the way to Lake Dallas. It was sleeting. It was January. But I had them take me out in that water. With, I remember the ice hitting the water. I said, put me under quick. They put me under. I came out praising God for the water baptism. And I ran to that good time van and changed. It was cold, buddy. But I'll tell you, that's how bad I wanted to get baptized. But did that save me? No. I was saved in juvenile home. And when I got out of ju juvenile home, I was as saved as I was when I came out of the water. But I wanted to obey the Lord. All right. Anybody else with a question? Yeah, I got yes, one, one more. And along the same lines, kind of funny they ask, but with the story with Nicodemus, so he's talking about having to be born again. And he does say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Several definitions of what people believe that water yeah. is. What do you believe the water is? Well, remember, he's talking about birth. Right. Born. So I think he's talking about a, a mother's water breaking. Water's ambiotic fluid. Okay. And that's because he, in context, it's birth. You've got to be born twice. So the first time you're born, your mother's water breaks, and you're, you're born after that happens. But you've got to be born again, or you won't enter the kingdom of God. So I don't think that he's talking there at all about water baptism. All right, anyone else? Yes, sir. Yeah, so when uh, God tells Abraham to uh, sacrifice his son, yep. they go... He travels three days yep. to Mount Moriah, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm wondering how old you think Isaac was. To me, is he 33? Like no, it's, it's, no. His, his, his I mom think, dies when she she was 127, and it's right after that. I think that Isaac. Now, this I would have to check to be sure, but I think he was. I'm going to say around 12, but I want to be sure. I want to check on that. Um, but it seems my memory is telling me that for some reason, but it could be off. So I'm not sure. Um, cause, because, for instance, it calls him a lad. And you're not going to call a 33-year-old a lad. Uh, he was a boy. Um, I think that he was around 12 when that happened. But I'll check on that, and you come next week, and I'll tell you. All right? But, again, a lad, not 33. Yes? Okay. Back to uh, the fasting thing. So what about these sisters or brothers or whatnot that's come over, or you see around food, and they say, well, no, I can't have anything to eat because I'm fasting. Is that the same thing as blowing your, tooting your horn? And it depends. Only God knows their motive. Only God knows. I don't know. Um, I do know that, and we've all probably experienced this, we're in a prayer meeting, and somebody has handed the mic. and Or they just start praying from the audience. And they just 
go on and on. And you can tell, you know, it's, if thou wouldest, thou couldest, and thou shouldest, and oh, thou great God, uh, if thou wouldst please answer us, oh, dear Lord. And you go through all of this syrupy eloquence. You got to, I mean, there have been times I wanted to say, somebody tell them to sit down because that prayer is not going above the ceiling. They're, imp- they're doing this to impress us. All right. It was very obvious. You know, my spirit's grieved, but other times only God knows. Okay. I have yeah. one more. Uh, Leviticus nine twenty four. you know, when the, this may sound, you know, but when the, um, when the fire of the Lord came down and consumed the burnt offerings. Yep. Okay. Was that God eating the meat? No. It was God. It was God uh, receiving the offering. Uh, it's called a sweet-smelling fragrance. It was, it was just God consuming the offering, saying, I receive it. I receive this offering. This, in other words, when God received an offering in the Old Testament and the fire fell, um, that was your way of knowing God had received it. Same thing with Elijah in the showdown on, on uh, the mountain with the prophets of Baal. The fire fell and consumed his offering and licked up the water in the trenches. And that was God saying, uh, amen to Elijah's prayer, and I am the true God. And it was always a, a positive affirmation when, when fire fell from heaven. All right? Yes. Okay. I do not know how to speak very well. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, okay, wait. I want to know, I keep hearing this a lot, that people, the young people want the Old Testament God versus the New Testament. Yeah. Why? I mean, because, what do you say to them? Okay. What you say to them is they're one and the same. What they're doing, and I hear this a lot, what they're doing is they're cherry-picking verses out of the Old Testament that make God look really mean, really vindictive, angry, unfair. Uh, For instance, the slaughter of the Canaanites. That's one of the big ones. How could God order the slaughter of men, women, and children in Canaan? They bring that up. And they say, how can you compare that God to Jesus? fact is, they're one and the same. They're one and the same. Um, what you're seeing with the Canaanite slaughter um, is judgment from heaven, but what they don't ever investigate, just for an instance here, is that God told Abraham they were going to have 400 years to repent. 400 years was given to them to repent. He gave the people of Noah's day 120 years to repent. So you see there the mercy of God. He gave them all centuries to repent, but they wouldn't. And if you knew what the Canaanites were doing, why God ordered the extermination, and and by the way, the extermination of the Canaanites is the only extermination in the Old Testament. 
It's the only total extermination. They want to call it genocide, but it was God judging a culture that had totally self-destructed and corrupted everything. Now, I'll put it this way, too. How many of those people that want to know about the destruction of the Canaanites have a problem with the fact that God rained fire on Sodom and Gomorrah? They don't ever talk about that. But there was women. There was children. I hate to say it. There were little dogs. Pets. Cats. Everything. Why don't they talk about that? I'll tell you why. Because God did it and not men. But he ordered his people to go in and exterminate the Canaanites. But it was judgment, same kind of judgment that fell on Sodom, same kind of judgment that was executed in Noah's day. The whole world was taken out. But eight people. We stumble because we don't understand sin. And that a culture, and I'm going to close with this, but the Bible talks about the cup of iniquity coming to the full. And God was waiting for the Canaanite culture, took 400 years, for their iniquity to reach the full. In other words, there's no turning back. There's no way to fix this. There's no way it's ever going to be healed or resolved. And if I don't do something, this is going to spread and affect the entire world. So I've got to judge. And in my mercy, I will end them. We don't understand that. Because we go, well, that's just mean. And it almost sounds like, well, is that what Hamas is doing over there? No. What Hamas is doing is evil from the deepest pit of hell. When God sends judgment, that's an entirely different thing. The iniquity reaches the full. There is a line in the sand that only God knows. He'll take a person out to save their soul. I'm hearing music. Oh. It's him again. Okay. He'll take out a whole culture when the iniquity reaches the full. There comes a point where God says, all that's left is judgment. Th that's all that's left. Nothing else is going to resolve this. Our issue is we don't like God being God. Who's God to take out a culture? Well, he made them. Did you make them? Who are you to look up and say to God, what are you doing? Okay? Doesn't make him mean. You just don't understand sin. And so, because remember, Jesus walked into the temple with a whip. And he whipped them out of there. And let me tell you something else. On the great white throne judgment, you know who sits on that throne? Jesus. He's going to judge the whole human race. Your Jesus, my Jesus. That's the same 
God, the Son, who was involved in the judgment in the Old Testament. One and the same. They probably won't like the answer, but these days people blow me away. They look up and they blaspheme and curse God to his face. I, I just, I tremble for them. Can we stand up tonight? Well, this has been a good question and answer time. Thank you for some good questions. Yeah. Amen. All right, Father, we just thank you tonight. Help us to do things with the right, as unto you. Purify our hearts, Lord. Purify my heart. Help me. Help us to truly serve Jesus from our heart. And we thank you for it, Lord, and we bless you for it in Jesus' name.